Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. I'm your host for this program. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. If you'd like to find out what's happening at our church just south of St. Louis, uh, the web address is stmatthewbt.org. And in the studio with me today will be two frequent guests to our program, uh, the Reverend Paul Langraff and the Reverend Dr. Kevin Golden. Our topic today is going to be the marriage of priests. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And so uh, this is a very timely topic with all the headlines. And what did the Lutheran Church do about this question of should priests or pastors be allowed to get married. We invite your participation in our program today. We have a toll-free number all across North America. That number is 800-730-2727. Again, 800-730-2727. And locally here in St. Louis, area code 314-821-0850. Again, 314-821-0850. 0850. You can also email us your comments or questions. The email address is kfuo at kfuo.org. And so we welcome into the studio today our good friends uh, Paul Langraff and Kevin Golden. And welcome to the program, Paul. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you. Good. And uh, you are the pastor where? At St. John Lutheran Church in the small town of Drake, west of St. Louis and also in uh, at Pilgrim Lutheran Church in Freedom. And can people find out more about your church yes, we, we online? Actually, we actually have websites, saintstjohnlutheran-drake.com, and then pilgrimlutheranfreedom.com. All right. And when are your services on Sunday morning at each place? Well, 8.30 at the first one, and then I go... What's the first one? Uh, St. John, and, and then uh, further out, 20 minutes out. Uh, it's about half uh, an hour drive for me west of St. Louis, and then 20 minutes more is uh, Pilgrim in f- small town of Freedom. All right, very good. And then also to your right is Pastor Kevin Golden. Welcome, Kevin. Good to be with you. This has been Kevin Golden Day at the uh, International Center, has it not? That's right. That's what right. have you been? You've been here all day. I uh, have been blessed. So I started the day actually on the other side of the highway doing chapel at the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Yep. And then I came here and did chapel here at the International Center at 10 a.m. Then on, I was on at 11 a.m. with Pastor Whedon for Thy Strong Word. And now... I'm saving the best for last. You two fine gentlemen. There, there you go. And I saw you were actually doing a little office work there in the lobby in between. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. It's a mobile society. Hey, you've got an event we were talking about. You've got an event coming up at Village in Ladue 
on Thursday, October 25th. What's that? So uh, it is a both a book signing, but also author event. So you'll get to hear from the authors for a, a wonderful new text that uh, the listeners of KFUO have been hearing a lot about in recent days. Uh, and the uh, text is entitled, He Restores My Soul. And so uh, the both the editor, and that's Katie Shorman, she'll be there. And then four of the authors, I don't recall how many total authors are in that tome, uh, but four of the authors will be present there. Also to share word about uh, uh, the specific specificity of what they wrote about. So that would be Cheryl Magnus, Cheryl Swopes, Heather Smith, and... Who am I forgetting? Heather Heather Smith, you mentioned her? Yes, and... Uh, uh, Let's see. Sias. Oh, yes. Heidi Heidi Sias. Sias. Yes. How could I forget Heidi? So, in fact, Cheryl Swope is uh, one of the members at St. Matthew in Bon Terre. Mm -hmm. All right, very good. Uh, Well, let's get into our topic today, and it is the marriage of priests. I guess we're in favor of the marriage of priests. Uh, <laughs> I hope my wife is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She assures me she is. And how many kiddos do you have now, Mr. Golden? Uh, we have. We are blessed with seven children. Wow. Yes. And uh, Brother Langreth. It's a good biblical number. How many kiddos do you have? Three. Three, Just very good. Oh, that's also three. a biblical number. So and I have, I have one child myself. <laughs> All right. So um, let's get people up to... St- speed here, uh, because we're in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, which is in response to the Roman Catholic objections to the Augsburg Confession. Augsburg Confession, 1530, what our Lutheran churches believe, teach, and confess. The Roman theologians came back with a confutation objecting to what some of the things we said were. And so then Philip Melanchthon takes to pen to uh, write the Apology, which is the defense of the Augsburg Confession. So just to quickly get us up to speed on this topic, uh, I'm going to just read a few highlighted sections from the original Augsburg Confession, Article 23, and then uh, just the preceding paragraphs from the Apology that were covered in the preceding programs here. So going back to Augsburg Confession, Article 23, I'm just going to read some highlights here. And all these things that come up in the in what we've already covered will come up anew in the new material today. So Article 23, Augsburg Confession. Just excerpted comments here. Complaints about unchaste priests are common. Since our priests, meaning the Lutheran ones, wanted to avoid these open scandals, they married wives and taught that it was lawful for them to enter into marriage. First, because Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and, quote, it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Both of those quotations from 1 Corinthians 7. Second, Christ says, not everyone can receive this saying, Matthew 19, where he teaches that not everyone is able to lead to lead a single life. It is not within a person's power without God giving a unique gift to change this creation. Therefore, those who are not able to lead a single life ought to marry. No human law, no vow, can destroy God's commandment and ordinance. It is clear that in the ancient church, priests were married men. For Paul says, quote, An overseer must be the husband of one wife, 1 Timothy 3. 400 years ago, and this is from 1530, they're saying this, 400 years ago in Germany, for the first time, 
priests were violently forced to lead a single life. That would have been in the 1100s. Another quote here. Uh, We expect that at some point churches will lack pastors if marriage continues to be forbidden. Uh, Impure celibacy will cause many scandals, adulteries, and other crimes that deserve punishment from just rulers. In light of all this, it is incredibly, incredibly cruel that the marriage of priests is forbidden. Paul, in 1 Timothy 4, says that a doctrine of demons forbids marriage. So those are a few excerpts from Augsburg Confession, Article 23. And then in the Apology, after the Roman Confutation, in the preceding paragraphs before today's new material, in paragraphs 1 through 13, I'll just read a few uh, highlights from that. In spite of the great scandal about their filthy celibacy, The adversaries, that would be the Roman theologians, arrogantly defend pontifical law, the law of the Pope, uh, to not allow the marriage of priests. And then a little comment directed to Emperor Charles V of the Roman Empire. Contrary to divine law, the law of nations and the canons of the councils, they ask you, Emperor Charles V, to break apart marriages, to punish innocent men horribly merely for the sake of marriage, to put priests to death whom even barbarians reverently spare, to exile banished women and fatherless children. We cannot approve this law about celibacy that the adversaries defend because it conflicts with divine and natural law and disagrees with the very canons of the councils. It produces countless scandals, sins, and corruption of public morals. First, Genesis 1.28 teaches that people were created to be fruitful and that one sex should desire the other in a proper way. This love of one sex for the other is truly a divine ordinance. But since this ordinance of God cannot be removed without an extraordinary work of God, it makes sense that statutes or vows cannot remove the right to contract marriage. Just as human laws cannot change the nature of the earth, so also without uh, so without God's special work, neither vows nor a human law can change a human being's nature. Second, because this creation or divine ordinance in humanity is a natural right, jurists have said wisely and correctly that the union of male and female belongs to natural right. Furthermore, a natural right is truly a divine right because it is an ordinance divinely imprinted on nature. Otherwise, why would both sexes have been created? As it has been said before, we are not speaking of lustful desires, which is sin, but of that desire called physical love. Lustful desire has not removed this physical love from nature, but inflames it so that now physical love has greater need of a cure. Marriage is necessary not only for the sake of procreation, but also as a cure. So far, that brings you up to speed with what has been covered thus far. Um, Either Paul or Kevin, do you have any initial comments before we get into the new material? Did anything stand out from those excerpts to you? Well, this is just kind of a general comment that flows along with what you read is that, hey, this all goes back to the order for creation. Mm -hmm. And what the Lord has created is good. Yeah. 
Pure. Before the fall, he said, Before this the is fall. very good. Yeah, exactly. And we even, uh, this is a wonderful of our own liturgy that we have when it comes to the solemnizing of a marriage. Uh, I know both of you have uh, officiated at weddings in the past. You know this quite well, where we talk about uh, in uh, the pastoral exhortation that begins the, the rite, is we talk about how, hey, this was instituted by God in paradise prior to the fall into sin, and that bespeaks just how blessed and good it is that marriage is not something to be looked upon askance, but something to be re, uh, embraced and to rejoice in. Paul, anything jump out at you as I read those excerpts? Well, that, that was the same thing, going back to the beginning. Some people don't like going back so far into history, so far back into time, because they, uh, it's not relevant, but it is relevant mm -hmm. today. And, it's, and it has not, God didn't have a second word saying, okay, we have enough people on earth, you can, you can stop multiplying now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, two things jumped out, a couple things jumped out of me from either the AC or the Apology. One is all the scandals, and as we have time at the end, we can comment on what's in every every week you see a new headline about this sort of thing. But also he says, if you forbid the marriage of priests, there's going to become a time when there aren't enough priests. Mm -hmm. And uh, in in the church where they forbid marriage of priests, they've experienced that also. Right, right. Another thing that jumped out at me uh, in terms of our culture in the last 10 years and political correctness and uh, sort of the emperor's new clothes where you're not allowed to say certain things is, uh, he says, otherwise, why would both sexes have been created? And uh, uh, that, that male and female, and that it's uh, presuming that marriage is between a male and a female, and there are only two sexes. Mm -hmm. And uh, what does that say to our culture today? What would our politically correct culture say about that? Right. And and maybe we ought to just also comment that this gets down to the physicality of God's creation. Part A and part B. Yes. That God made us this way. Yes. And uh, when it comes to f the physical, God delights in the physical. After all, That's he created all of it. Uh, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took on human flesh and that he could still remain the sinless son of God because the problem is not physicality, the problem is sin and mm -hmm, such. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, uh, we ought not downplay the uh, the physical. And that goes across a host of issues, uh, uh, just huge. But also that includes how we even understand what does it mean to be man and woman that, hey, that it's a physical reality and that's a good thing. And God hardwired us this way. Yes, yeah. Now, in our fallen condition, we have all kinds of challenges that come up against that, but it doesn't undo the created reality, the good create, created reality that God has given us. Yeah. All right. Anything else, Paul, before we jump into the new material? No, let's jump in. Let's all right, let's go. go. All right. So uh, he had mentioned first his uh, arguments for the marriage of priests. Uh, uh, he mentioned first in paragraph seven about... Uh, People, God created us this way that one sex should desire the other. And then a second reason, he said, was in paragraph 9, um, that it is a natural right, uh, that people have a right to get married, and uh, it's unchangeable. Um, unless God gives a, a special gift, you can't undo that. So now we get to paragraph 14 with a third reason. Third, Paul, that's Paul the Apostle, not Paul Landgraf. Of course. Although Paul, Paul the Landgraf, the Landgrave, would agree with this. Uh, third, Paul says, because of the temptation, uh, quote, 
because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. This is a clear command having to do with everyone unfit for celibacy. First of all, let me mention that if uh, this first chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, has a lot to say about um, why people, several reasons why people ought to get married, and also speaks about the, the gift of celibacy, and if you don't have that. All right, so that's a relevant chapter in this. Uh, but here he says, uh, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And he mentions, uh, for everyone who does not have, uh, for everyone who is unfit for celibacy. Um, Paul, what is meant by that? Everyone unfit for celibacy. Well, uh, where he's going to talk about this more and more clear, but it's as a gift that you're able to be celibate. And and somebody who who doesn't have that gift shouldn't act like they, they have it. Yeah, and you're going to get in trouble if you yeah, try to big trouble. pretend you have it and you don't. Yeah, and some are given that gift, which, you know, I remember when I was younger, I would joke with my friends about it being a gift. Well, usually if you look at it as a gift... From my perspective, I wouldn't see that as a gift because I don't have that gift, if you will. All right. Instead, the Lord gave me the gift of a wife. Um, But it is a it's a reminder once again, not only that this is what God has created us for, but also at the same time, we need to recognize that. There are some who have been given that gift of celibacy. St. Paul most Saint prominently. St. Paul, or even more prominent, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, he never married. And one point that should be made in this is that that did not make him less of a human being. In fact, yeah. if anybody was ever truly human, or not an if, this is not a conditional sentence, this is truly the fact, no one was as fully human as Christ was. He was fully human in every positive sense of that, and yet he never married, all right? And so that's a, a good thing to keep in mind here, that getting married doesn't make you necessarily more human, or you have an unfulfilled life if you don't get married. Mm-hmm. No, um, but it is the natural created order for a man to desire a woman and a woman to desire a man. And so the Lord gives us, uh, in the, his created order, this blessed union of husband and wife. Good. Paragraph 15. The adversaries ask to be shown a commandment that commands priests to marry as though priests are not men. Uh, we certainly judge that the things we hold about human nature in general also have to do with priests. Have, has anybody ever been surprised that you're a man? I mean, <laughs> do they think that because you're a priest, you wear a collar, that somehow you don't have sexual desire? Well, you, it is interesting the looks you can get when you're wearing your collar and you're out with your wife, or <laughs> also if I'm out with my wife and seven Child, children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get some real interesting looks. But it's also um, bespeaks that, well, they're talking about this as a command. You know, show us where in Scripture there's a command a, that a priest a, has to the marry. The burden of proof should be the other way around. Right. And the other, yeah, the, the whole point here is that this is not a commanded item. You're not commanded to be celibate. You're not commanded to be married. You have freedom in this matter based upon who God has made you to be. If he's given you the gift of celibacy, then don't get married. But if you have not been given that gift, by all means, find a faithful spouse and rejoice in that good gift. Paul. Well, it's the difference between a command and a gift, right? You, yeah. you you treat it as a gift if you have celibacy. You don't say, well, 
maybe I'm gay or something like that, and and just going off of what the Lord says and and His words, treat it as a gift. You know, I, I'm I, I, thirty years ago I was a, uh, on a seminary exchange program in Korea, and I, maybe I'm not recalling this correctly, but it seems to me they required. They actually did the opposite. Not to, that they required celibacy, but they require marriage mm-hmm. before you could become a pastor. Yeah, and I understand, yeah, that was kind of the unwritten rule, even at our alma mater back Senate. in the day, that you couldn't be married during seminary, but you need to be married by You're the time you became a pastor. pretty darn well found one on so, your vicarage. Yeah, so for most guys, it was a matter of... I get I graduate seminary. The next day you get married. Uh, the next day I get married, and the day after that I get ordained and installed. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty uh, hectic time. Yeah. yeah, so we don't forbid, we don't require uh, celibacy of our pastors, nor do we require marriage. Correct. But if you have, if you don't have the gift of celibacy, it's haven't you? It's a good thing to try to get married when right. you can, because you're more likely to fall into temptation if you're mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. married. All right. Uh, let's see. Where were we? Uh, so, paragraph 16, uh, does not Paul in this passage command marriage for those who do not have the gift of chastity? All right, so uh, he's talked about the gift of celibacy. Here he's talking about the gift of chastity. Just technically, what's there, these terms here are being used interchangeably. What is the difference between the word celibacy and the word chastity? Well, I think uh, chastity, of course, is something that even as a married man, you can have chastity. You think about even how we use the word in the catechism, uh, that we live a pure or chaste and decent life, all right? And that is something I'm called to do within marriage. Celibacy, though, is very specific to uh, being not engaging in sexual intercourse and such. And this is obviously what the Lord calls upon those who are not married, how they are to live their life, celibate. But chaste, well, for the person who is celibate, a chaste life also means that they don't end up in um, in the kind of scandalous things that are being mentioned within this very text. But for but a married also, for person, a married man, I'm called to lead a chaste life as well. And you do that even having seven kids. I do that even having seven kids. Because you're just with your wife. I'm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, seven children good. all by one woman. Yeah, yeah. very good. All right. Uh, let's see here. Um, so that was through paragraph 16. Um, now we go on. Paul interprets himself a little later when he says, It is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And Christ has clearly said, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Um what is it meant by that, Paul Langreff? Only those to whom it is given. Well, the going back to the the whole idea of a gift, mm-hmm. you, you you don't when when you have when you're dealing with God and and something something comes your way from Him, you can look at it as oh this is this is terrible. You can look at it as a gift. Now certainly the bad things we tend to see them as as bad and the good things we see as good but that's not always what god says the context there in matthew 19 is where jesus has been talking about don't get divorced don't divorce and so that you know because the pharisees would try to excuse dumping their wife by saying well i gave her a certificate uh and yet uh jesus says well that's not how it's supposed to be you know and uh 
the disciples say, well, then I guess it's better not even to get married. And he says, well, that's not given to everybody. That's a special gift. All right, we got a minute to go before our break. Uh, let's try to get a little bit more here in paragraph 16. Since Adam's fall into sin, these two things agree, natural appetite and lustful desire. Lustful desire inflames the natural appetite so that now there is more need of marriage than in nature uh, in its perfection. So Paul speaks of marriage as a cure, and because of these flames, he commands marriage. What's meant here, gentlemen, by this distinction between natural appetite and lustful desire? So natural appetite, it is created by God for man to find delight in woman. And also for a woman to find delight in man. That is natural. That is God-pleasing. It's the way he made us. But then the lustful desire is when that uh, becomes perverted into what is not in accord with God's natural order. Mm -hmm. So that when the desire becomes for somebody other than my wife. Yeah. So God hardwired us, as I use that term, uh, to, to be sexual attra- to, for there to be sexual attraction. That's a good thing. The natural appetite, but when it, lustful desire gets in there and takes it out of bounds, as you might say. I think we're coming up on our break now, and uh, we'll, we'll be right back after this break here on Concord Matters. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson. Did you know that October is Pastor Appreciation Month? As a Church of the Week, your pastor and your church will receive 35 30-second on-air announcements. In addition, your pastor will be able to be a guest on one of our programs. What a wonderful gift you could give to your pastor to show your appreciation for all that he does to communicate Christ. Your church will also be featured at the top of every hour during your week. Call me for further information on special pricing for Pastor Appreciation Month. 314-996-1522. Missouri has long been known as the show-me state, so the next time you head to the ballot box, you'll be asked to show a photo ID. Show a Missouri driver's license or non-driver's license, or show a passport. You can even show a bank statement, student ID, utility bill, or voter registration card, and sign a statement confirming your identity. Don't have a photo ID? Obtain one for free. Visit showittovote.com for more information. Remember, if you're registered to vote, you can vote. Sponsored by the Missouri Secretary of State's office. This week on Issues Etc., we'll discuss God the Father with Pastor Paul McCain. We'll continue our series on Lutheran Catechesis, talking with Pastor Peter Bender about the Second Commandment and Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday School lesson on Moses and the Plagues. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. That is a fair ball, and it's 4-2 Kansas City in the 12th. 
And in Game 5 of the 2015 World Series, the bottom of the 12th inning, the Kansas City Royals win their first championship in 30 years against the New York Mets. A win especially satisfying for Dayton Moore, general manager for the Royals, a team in a small market that hadn't had much success since winning the World Series in 1985. It was a call with his mentor, Tim Cash, team chaplain for the Atlanta Braves, that changed Moore's mind. The clincher was when Cash quoted a passage from the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, recorded in 2 Timothy 1.7. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Regardless of outcomes, Moore has remained adamant in his desire to impact players' and coaches' lives. He says, it's a blessing to do something you love to do that you're passionate about. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. We are back on KFUO, Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Uh, we're talking about uh, Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 23, the marriage of priests, which the Lutherans said we can do, contrary to what the Pope was saying, you shouldn't do that. And we're talking about this. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, uh, ho uh, your host today, along with Pastors Paul Landgraf and Kevin Golden. We left off in paragraph 16, and we'll we'll continue there. Neither can any human authority, law, or vows remove this declaration. It is better better to marry than to be aflame with passion, because they do not remove the nature or lustful desire. Therefore, all who burn keep the right to marry. By this commandment of Paul, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, 1 Corinthians 7, all are held bound who do not truly keep themselves chaste. This, the, the decision about chastity is one of individual conscience. So, Paul Langreff, how is marriage a cure for this burning with passion? Well, I like your, your definition of it as a cure. Uh, you, you have this passion, you uh, have this passion for a uh, female, and it it gets res resolved. It needs to get located in one female. Right, <laughs> right. And and people uh, stress about well, which one is is this the right one? And after you married, yes, it was the right one. How did you know, <laughs> yes. Paul? How did At, you know that she was the right one for you? After I got married, I knew she was the right one for me. <laughs> well, there was an initial attraction. Talk about this. The ladies will be interested in how, how oh, you I'm met sure. your wife. Right, right. So she, she uh, was... We were seminary classmates. Right. I remember for another year. classmate, John Jameson, you guys married sisters, right? Right, right. So I, I met her uh, right at the beginning of fourth year. Yeah. And uh, uh, Lutheran, and she... she was in the right place at the right time, and and uh, a very attractive young woman. Right, right. That helps. Yes. <laughs> now, Pastor Kevin Golden, you of seven children, uh, <laughs> your wife is a joy, isn't she? She is a joy. How did you meet her? Uh, I think met, she might be listening today. She might be. Um, we met not at seminary, but instead during college. I was a senior; she was a freshman, and we met at a Bible study at the Lutheran Student Center on campus. Cool. And Great I think place. we were something like the fortieth marriage, something like that, to come out of that Lutheran Student Center. So, and we're, we're like their 
golden rays emanating from her, or <laughs> golden rays, I guess. Yeah, uh, well, I... Uh, I uh, rejoice in many fond memories of uh, meeting her in our early days together and such. Uh, but, of course, as uh, the listeners uh, who've enjoyed marriage know that, hey, uh, that young love gives way eventually to a mature love that's even deeper and more rich. Yeah, yeah. Good. And that, once again, I think gets back to here's what God has created us for. There's a beauty in that. You know, you uh, maybe don't have quite the... Uh, Oh, the butterflies in the stomach that maybe you did when you were first uh, with mm -hmm. this individual, but that there's something far deeper than that that you enjoy as you get to. Uh, so marriage for priests is kind of like marriage for just ordinary civilians, right? It's it's not it has its highs and its lows, yes, but it, it's not all emotion. Uh, if you see the movie, the, I love the 1953 Luther Martin Luther movie. That's my favorite one, and the great scene uh, where. Martin Luther, who's now about what forty-one years old, he's got this uh, these these nuns who have left the convent, and he's trying to marry him off. And he says to this one that hasn't gotten married yet, uh, Katie, he says, "Well, what about Doctor Who and so? Oh no, uh, Pastor, not him. Or well, what about him? No, 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 he's not the right one." And then there's this great scene where she's looking, giving him the doe eyes. And then the next, <laughs> the next scene is they're pronouncing marriage. Mm -hmm. That's a great scene in that movie. So yeah, Martin Luther himself got married in 1525. No, and you know this is getting a little off topic, but I think it's beneficial. Is that you know sometimes the argument and I've heard this come from people um, that I've met at this point in time, individuals who are of a Catholic background, yeah. and so they are accustomed to their priests being unmarried. Some of them think that's a problem. You know, I've heard some say, oh, I, I could never go to my priest to talk about my marital problems because he wouldn't understand because he hasn't been through that. I don't, to be honest, I don't completely agree with that no. because, hey, my members will come to me and talk about any number of things that they are grappling with that I have never had to face personally myself. And Saint but Paul, I can bring the word of God to bear upon Saint it. St. Paul yeah. taught about marriage quite a bit. Right. And he was given but the I've gift had, of celibacy. I've heard others make this argument saying, well, the priest should not be married because he's supposed to be married to the church. And by being married to the church, that just that means he has more time, more energy to give to the church. All right. Now, I would actually argue that's completely wrongheaded that, yes, my wife and children require time for me and they require energy of me, but I would argue they actually make me a far better pastor because of that time and energy I give to them. And it's not just because I can better understand what other people are dealing with uh, because I deal with family life and such, but rather because, you know, it's kind of like regaining my sanity at times you know mm -hmm. there are there are days that you know being a pastor is a blessed thing but there are days where it can be rather mind-numbing where you are uh helping one person who's grappling with um, cancer and then you go and visit somebody who's mourning the death of a spouse and then you visit with somebody whose child has run off and then mm -hmm. you know all kinds of and it's just like by the end of the day your mind is numb and it is exceedingly therapeutic when I go home and I'm with my wife and children. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually part of God's whole order for creation. Now, needing to be healed by the presence of my wife and children, that's really the result of the fall into sin. But still, this is how the Lord has created us to find, uh, well, mutual joy between husband and wife, 
procreation, but also that we're there to support one another. And mm -hmm. so being married makes me a better pastor. So, hey, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. I'll make this plug. Oh, listeners, if you want to show appreciation for your pastor, go do something nice for his wife. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And now I will say in defense, uh, for the few priests and pastors who do have the gift of celibacy, we would concede there can be the advantage of more time. Sure. Look at what Paul was able to do. Yes. Being with the gift of celibacy, his tr he accomplished more for the spread of the gospel than anybody in human history. And it's a recognition. Whatever place you are in life, the Lord blesses. Yeah. So he will use the celibacy for Paul. I've got brother pastors who are who single. have never been married, single, and uh, hey, they're doing great and such. They've just never found the right lady to marry. Um, but also, hey, my marriage, my children, my family, they are a boon to my service as a pastor. Very good. Let's go on with another paragraph or two here. Um, paragraph 18. Here the adversaries command seeking chastity from God, weakening the body through labor and hunger. Why do they not proclaim these magnificent commandments to themselves? As we have said before, the adversaries are only playing. They are doing nothing seriously. Uh, if chastity were possible at all, it would not require a peculiar gift. But Christ shows that it needs a peculiar gift. Therefore, not everyone has it. God wishes the rest to use the common law of nature which he has instituted. He does not wish his ordinances, his creations to be hated. He wishes people to be chaste in this way, that they use the remedy divinely presented, just as he wishes that we use food and drink so that our life is nourished. What is this part about that the adversaries say that, that priests should seek chastity uh, by weakening the body through labor and hunger? What's that talking about, either one of you? Well, I, in my edition here, the Book of Concord, I have a quote from the Confutation, what, what they're saying. And the Confutation, they're quoting here, it says, For those consecrated to God have other remedies for their weaknesses. For example, they may avoid contact with women, shun idleness, lessen the flesh's appetites through fasts and vigils, keep the outward senses, especially sight and and hearing from forbidden things, especially the eyes from seeing vanities. <laughs> They're doing all these... Uh, Artificial means to suppress right. the natural right. desire, right. huh? It's, it's mm -hmm. not that easy. We're, we're, we're by nature sinful and unclean. Think of Luther with the self-flagellation in the monastery and so forth. Any comments on that, Paul? Uh, Pastor Gold. Amen. This, Amen. Is, this is not how the Lord has created us. And so you go with the Lord's order rather than a man-created order to grapple with these realities. You're trying to suppress what God has built into you right? Uh, through artificial means by, by fastings or uh, and of course, work and so on. Fasting itself is a good discipline to be yeah. engaged in. But obviously, even when it comes to fasting, you end up breaking the fast, all right? Um, there if you go about a Lenten fast, you end up eating again, all right? Mm -hmm. And it's actually according to the Lord's good order that you eat, and maybe even that you enjoy what you eat. You know, that's a good thing from the Lord. And so also, uh, Paul elsewhere will talk about, hey, husband and wife, it's okay for you for a period of time yes. to separate from one another, so don't engage sexually. That is okay, 
But number one, you do it for a purpose, so that you are engaged in prayer. And, and don't such. deprive your spouse. And that's the other part is, hey, don't let this get to a point where it leads you into sin because of burning lust. So you do it for a short period of time, then you come back together so that uh, you don't leave and if each you other deprive your, if you deprive your spouse for too long of natural marital relations, you're going to put a problem, you're going to lead your spouse into temptation. Can I read one, the, the last one for the confutation? So the, the Roman church, this is what they're saying, what, what you should do. They may, quote, dash their little ones, end quote, that is carnal thoughts, Quote, against the rock, and the rock is Christ. <laughs> they're they're, they're explaining an imprecatory sound refer like to <laughs> dashing your sexual desires against... And, and frequently kind of and devoutly resort to God in prayer. Oh, man. So they're, they're just building on a poor foundation. They're yeah, yeah. These yeah. To defend things, this yeah. law. Yeah. Now, of course... Hey, some individuals who desire a spouse but have not yet been given one, yeah. they do engage in these sorts of things. They have to find a means by which they can live yeah. a celibate, chaste life, and it's not easy. Yeah. All right. Uh, but of course, the big point here is to command that that is how life it has to be ordered is wrong. It's the making of a law out of this that for priests where God has not spoken. All right, paragraph twenty. Uh, Gerson also testifies that there have been many good men who tried very hard to subdue the body and yet made little progress. So Ambrose is right in saying virginity is only a thing that can be recommended but not commanded. It is a matter of vow rather than of precept. Now, I know when Ambrose lived in the late 300s, I was not so sure about Gerson. I had to look it up around the year 1400. Why do uh, why does Melanchthon and the Lutheran confessors why do they quote Gerson and Ambrose? What is the what is the undercurrent of why they're referring to this? Well, this is a standard throughout the Lutheran confessions is to quote from the fathers, church uh, fathers who have come before us as a way to say, hey, we're not teaching anything novel here. Exactly. You know, we're not coming up with, we're not revolutionaries, we're just reformers, and so all we're doing is actually calling the church to return to the faithful practice that was there. Hey, Ambrose even recognized this. Yeah, very good. Uh, paragraphs 21 and 22. If anyone here would object that Christ praises those, quote, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 19, let him also consider that he, uh, that he praises those having the gift of, of chastity. Because of this, he adds, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. For an impure chastity, which is kind of an oxymoron, an impure chastity does not please Christ. We also praise true chastity. But now we are arguing about the law and about those who do not have the gift of chastity. The matter should be left free, and traps should not be cast upon the weak through this law. Paul Langreff, are we opposed to celibate priests? No. Um, and and again, the, the language that a Lutheran would use as opposed to a Roman Catholic would be the language of a gift. Okay. Uh, does, does he have this gift? And when you when you get off of that, when you ha use that language, you're you're talking about the the foundation that this is God's word. We're we're, we're going with God's word. When you talk about commands, ultimately, there's focus on yourself. Then, 
mm-hmm. am I doing or this command or what what do I do what do I don't do yeah loses focus all right now he, now Melanchthon's going to raise a fourth point in paragraph 23 and uh yeah let me read that one fourth the pontifical law that's the law of the pope differs also from the canons of the councils which were uh principles, decrees from previous church councils. So he's saying there's a distinction here. The ancient canons do not ban marriage. Neither neither do they dissolve marriages that have been contracted, even though they remove from clerical office those who contracted marriage during their ministry. At those times, this dismissal was an act of kindness. The new canons which have not been framed in the synods, but have been made according to the private judgment of the popes, both ban the contraction of marriages and dissolve them when contracted. This is to be done openly, contrary to Christ's command, what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Matthew 19. In the confutation, the adversaries exclaim that the councils command celibacy. We do not find fault with Uh, the council's decrees. Under a certain condition, they allow marriage. However, we do find fault with the laws enacted since the ancient synods, which the popes of Rome have created contrary to the authority of the synods. The popes hate the authority of the synods just as much as they want that authority to appear holy to others. Therefore, this law about permanent celibacy is peculiar to this new pontifical tyranny. Uh, nor is it without a reason. Uh, for Daniel 11.37 attributes this mark to the kingdom of Antichrist, hatred for women. What is the distinction? This gets into church history here. And I haven't looked up exactly when these decrees of either the councils or the pope came out. Uh, but what is this distinction being made here between the pontifical law versus the older canons of the councils. What's what's the point being made here? Well, we recognize the councils have done some really good things in the past. We don't agree with everything mm-hmm. that the councils have said, but the councils have done some very beneficial things. Uh, one more prominent one is the Council of Nicaea, uh, from which you had... Year uh, 325. Yep, and from which came um, what we know as the Nicene Creed, and actually what we know as the Nicene Creed uh, was further kind of solidified at a following council, the Council of Constantinople. 381. Yeah, and so you kind of take those two together, and you have what you and I, our listeners, know as the Nicene Creed. So the point is this. Hey, the councils have done some beneficial things. To be honest, Lutherans don't agree with every council, Mm -hmm. because uh, as elsewhere in the Book of Concord, we point out, hey, sometimes the councils actually disagree with each other, which points out they can't be infallible and inerrant. As Luther said in, in before the emperor, he said, popes and councils can err. Exactly, exactly. So, um... We recognize, though, when they give us teachings that are in accord with Scripture, we're going to run with them and such. Now, here in the Apology, it's being pointed out that while uh, these councils actually were teaching what Scripture teaches, as has been laid out so far, um, that, you know, the the councils are correct, but the pontifical uh, decrees and the commands that the that the papal office has put down are not in accord with the councils. So when it, maybe there were previous councils that recommended uh, celibate priesthood, but when the Pope made it a law, that's that a went whole too different far. thing. Paul Langraff, you got anything to add on that on the history here? 
of this uh, practice. No, but I I like the the fact that we realize that these these councils can err, mm-hmm. and and uh, even going back to the first council, Jerusalem Council, in, in about fifty, that um, they they were there were difficulties there, and and we don't have a, a in Acts fifteen we don't have a, a clear record of all that was said, but. Uh, that the, that's what the church is made up of sinners yeah. and, and looking to the 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 one who gives us all these gifts and i think it was in the later middle ages that it was actually institutionalized that priests could not marry right and you know this also sets up a, a pretty core standard that we follow when it comes to theology is that uh, where Scripture speaks, we speak. Where Scripture is silent, we're silent. So we cannot go beyond Scripture. And so this always becomes the rubric by which we judge every decree of a council, every other, every statement from a church. And it doesn't matter whether it's uh, a papal decree or whether, hey, it's a decree of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Mm-hmm. Uh, these the standard by which you judge it is, is it in accord with the Word of God? Does it say everything that script, uh, the Word of God says, or does it fall short of it? Or does it go beyond the Word of God? And we make a distinction between what we say, de jure duino and de jure humano. humano. Yeah, according to divine law or according to human law. If it's according to divine law that God has commanded it... There's no question about it. Then you have to, you know, there's no getting around that. That does not change. But if it's only according to human law that, for example, how we have chosen as the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to organize ourselves, yeah. that can change over time right. because that is not by divine command. Yes. All right. Now... Pastor Golding, you have your uh, doctorate in the Old Testament. Yes. So let me ask you this obscure question, and I haven't looked it up. Dan- I'll see if I have an obscure answer. Daniel 11.37. Uh, it says, uh, Daniel 11.37 attributes this mark of the kingdom uh, to the kingdom of Antichrist, hatred of women. Let me. Uh, I'm thumbing through my Bible right as we speak here. And uh, first of all, talk about what this Antichrist thing is. Well, how are they using the term Antichrist here? Well, um, there is a lot in Daniel. Daniel is a, is a challenging book, to yes. say the least, but it also is a rich book as a result. And Daniel talks a lot about, for example, the abomination that causes desolation. So it's, a lot of it is prophetic of things that would specifically be done by specific individuals in history in order to undermine and undercut what God has given his people to do. So, for example, in the book of Daniel, one of the things that is discussed is uh, kind of prophetic of um, the undercutting of the temple, which at the time of Daniel, the temple was not standing. This is during the exile, but the temple would be rebuilt. But then when it happens, uh, when it is rebuilt, there's going to be eventually those who come along like a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who will uh, bring about the abomination that causes desolation, uh, namely that he's going to have a pig sacrificed in the temple and mm-hmm. such. So the point is simply this, is that the spirit of Antichrist um, will wage against what God has graciously given his people. So here it would be the desire of women. My study note says he will suppress natural affection that leads to marriage. Um, so the way Melanchthon and the Lutheran Confessions use the term Antichrist is saying that the Roman Pope fulfills many of the marks of the Antichrist in forbidding marriage, at least of, of priests. And uh, later on, uh, our... Apology is going to 
quote from uh, St. Paul in Timothy where he calls right. the forbidding of marriage the doctrine of demons. Yes. Yep. 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 All right. Let's see. I want to get to at least paragraph 26 because this we, we want to talk about Jesus somewhere in here. Uh, so let's <laughs> yeah. talk about that. Uh, paragraph 26 uh, and maybe 27. Here we go. Uh, fifth, the adversaries do not defend the law because of superstition, for they see that it is not generally obeyed. Yet they spread superstitious opinions while giving it an, an appearance of religion. They claim that they require celibacy because it is purity, as though marriage were impure and a sin, as though celibacy merited justification more than marriage. To this end, they cite the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law, because under the law at the time of ministering, the priests were separated from their wives. The priest in the New Testament, because he should always pray, should always practice chastity, so the opponents say. This silly comparison is presented as a proof that should urge priests to permanent celibacy, although in this very comparison, marriage is allowed. Only during the time of ministry was its use prohibited. It is one thing to pray, it is another to minister. The saints prayed even when they did not exercise the public ministry. Conjugal intercourse did not hinder them from praying. So two points here. One is this silly comparison. They're taking the point about in the Mosaic law, the priests could not marry while they were ministering at the temple or tabernacle. Um, but then this thing about that celibacy or virginity merits justification. And here's where we want to talk about justification and Jesus here. Uh, either one of you take this up. What is this idea that uh, by doing this sort of super work, you can merit points toward justification. Paul Langerf, and how do we merit justification? Well, that that gets to the heart of, and goes back to the beginning, doesn't it? Where they where they're saying this this central, this foundational article of justification by faith in Jesus, and and to get there, you have to realize that you can't do anything. So so we need help. We're looking to Jesus, and if you you get that foundation wrong, it, you get wrong in so many other ways. This is like monasticism and other things, Pastor Golden. Just in the last minute here. Tell us, tell our listeners what we don't get justification from and where we do find it. You don't get it from being celibate. You don't get it from being married. You don't get it from anything that you do or whatever it might be. You're justified by God for the sake of Christ because of his all-sufficient merit earned for you via his death. That is what justifies you. You are declared righteous before God for the sake of Christ. He has taken your impurity. That includes, hey, whatever sin I would uh, have when I was unmarried and the sin I commit as a husband against my wife, all of that has been taken upon Christ, and he's given me his righteousness. And so this is the free gift of justification, of being pronounced righteous before God. It's not by your super religious works of running off and joining a monastery or becoming a celibate priest against your nature. It's by what Jesus Christ has done for you. And this is what we're doing here at KFUO, the messenger of good news, proclaiming that good news of salvation in Christ.